In 2011, Dr. Michael Goldstein began developing and growing a social movement focused on creating a culture of health in the UCLA community called the Healthy Campus Initiative. This initiative was envisioned and supported by Jane and Terry Semmel and embraced by UCLA Chancellor Jean Block in 2013. Today, I chat with Fielding School of Public Health professor and medical sociologist, Dr. Michael Goldstein, about the origins of the Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center and what it takes to create long-lasting culture change. Keep listening to hear about how social change begins not with rationality, but through social movements. Thank you for coming for this interview. Well, thank you for inviting me. Wonderful to be here. Great to see you. I don't really know where to start because there's so many places to start with you and and, um, how you have been instrumental in not only creating and and starting up this Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative, but also your pioneer and work at UCLA overall. And I'd like to start with the fact that you're a sociologist and you are your career's been in the School of Public Health. How did that kind of intersection occur in your career? Well, uh, my interest going back to when I started uh, studying sociology seriously as an undergraduate and then later as a graduate student, uh, a lot of it focused on um, two things. One was the uh, role of inequalities in society in determining all kinds of outcomes, one of which was health and health status. So by inequalities, I mean in terms of uh, income inequalities in the society, educational, racial, gender-based inequalities. So I was very struck by how those things played out in many areas of uh, people's lives throughout their lives, and, and one was health. Uh, the other thing that I was interested in was the the study of the professions, and uh, because of uh, funding uh, availability, most of the funding that was available to study uh, professions when I was going to graduate school had to do with the medical profession, the health professions in general. So those two areas came together, inequalities and the professions, and that's what eventually led to my being able to get a position at UCLA in the School of Public Health. And that so, was your first position. Well, I had taught for one year in, the, in a new in a medical school at Brown. Brown University uh, was forming a medical school, and that's where I got my Ph.D. And uh, when they began it, they only had the first two years of study. And um, then the students moved on to another medical school. But it was an innovative curriculum. And one of the things that they required, which was very innovative at the time, was a course in medical sociology for all the medical students. And they hired a famous person to come and teach it and eventually lead the program there in social medicine. But as part of his contract to get the job, he got his first year off. (laughs) And uh, so they needed someone to teach the medical students this uh, required course. And so I was sort of at the right place at the right time. So I taught there for one year. So then when this job came open at UCLA, uh, in those days, it was pretty unusual to find a sociologist who had experience teaching in a medical setting, particularly in a medical school. So on paper, it sort of looked like I knew what I was doing. And that facilitated my getting the job here. Really, I had no idea what I was doing. In the school of public health. Yeah, yeah, right. Because I had that medical school experience. So it was a coming together of my genuine intellectual um, interests with the way 
uh, the situation was changing in the United States, the availability of funding for these kinds of positions and the growing awareness um, that things like social determinants of health were really crucial in understanding the health problems of our society. I want to unpack just what you said because there's so many pieces that I'd like to sort of explore with you. I think the first question, just a quick follow-up, is was this when social determinants of health were emerging as a conversation in the academic world as well as the practice of medicine? Well, I think that's a complicated question. I'm not sure I can give a a fully accurate answer. I I think the answer is that in the academic world, it had had emerged long before. Uh, The question was, what kind of traction did that get within more of the the world of both um, health education of health professionals and in terms of just general awareness of people who were powerful in the healthcare Uh system that this had to be taken into account. And I think the way it came together, what would be of interest to us here was the growing interest in prevention Mm. as uh, the nature of disease or illness or disability in society came to be so much more uh, based on chronic problems Uh, rather than acute problems, there was a growing awareness of the need to emphasize prevention more, Mm. uh, that that was uh, going to be much better economically and medically and in every other way to prevent a problem than to try to deal with it, especially when there was no way of dealing with a lot of these problems very successfully. So all that came together just at a time when there was so much emphasis on the increasing costs of health care and that prevention then mm. came into prominence. And that's what was happening in public health. You know, public health had had a great deal of success dealing with acute conditions, uh, infectious conditions, things like this. And now public health, we're going back to the late 1960s, so it's a long time ago. You know, there was an awareness of bringing uh, a public health perspective to what was now seen as the the major health problems in the country, things like cancer, heart disease, of course, all the cardiovascular, stroke, Mm -hmm. whatever, hypertension, all of that, uh, and then eventually diabetes, and that um, prevention was so important and that the social determinants of health was so important and just knowing where these problems existed in society and where the emphasis had to be put. So all these things were coming together uh, so in that sense, it was a it was a good time to come into academia with the interest that I had. So it sounds like from at this point in time, yeah, with your interest in inequality and also what sounds like the opportunity for funding through the health studies of professional sector, that you were able to merge those interests with this emerging translation of what we now know quite well, social determinants of health. Well, what did you teach when you had to teach that first year? Like, what did, how did you pull together something with the students at Brown and the medical sociology? What was that about? Well, you're going back so long, I don't know that I can really give you an accurate... Uh, you know, when, when you start teaching in any subject, what you do when you're teaching in the beginning is you just teach what you've been taught. So uh, I guess what I did is I, I took my uh, the various courses that I had had that seemed relevant and, you know, came up with, with readings. And um, what I remember of it is, of course, uh, you know, medical students don't necessarily take this stuff too seriously. And certainly back then, this isn't what they saw themselves as, as doing. So who knows if they did the readings or not. But 
you know, we just had a lot of discussions. It was a small program uh-huh. and it emphasized small classes. So I had a couple of classes of maybe, you know, 15 students, first year medical students. And some of them were, were very interested in this kind of thing. They weren't interested in doing the readings, but they were interested in talking about it because of their experiences or whatever. And some of them were completely uninterested in it. And that's the experience that I found carrying through right up until I stopped doing this stuff a number of years ago. Right. That, uh, you know, there are there's a subset of uh, medical students and medical professionals who are very interested, very aware. And then there's a, a much larger group uh, that just don't see this as relevant for their work, because most physicians and most health practitioners are not dealing with prevention in terms of what they have to focus on. They're so overwhelmed with the, the problems, the real problems that they are seeing in the hospital or in their office or whatever, that prevention is an afterthought. They have so much they have to deal with today. So uh, that's another set of of issues that I think is a little remote from what we're talking about today. So this focus on prevention, which germinated, it sounds like, in this uh, work that you did at Brown, and then as you got invited here at UCLA, I'd love to know you know, as you've evolved and what you've taught me over time with the Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative work is your ability to not just translate uh, it to perhaps a single group, like a professional group, but your ability to start social movements and community organize. And I'd love to know, if you were to advise someone on, you know, wanting to work like a culture of health, for instance, which is really what the movement is now with the Southern Healthy Campus Initiative that you initiated eight years ago. And what did, you know, what are these, the key ingredients that you have found useful, at least on a campus level, that you think would be useful for other people to know about? Well, it's a complicated uh, question. I think some of it relates to a uh, my background and and uh, the perspective that I had about how social change occurs in a society and in institutions, and that's where this notion of emphasizing social movements comes from. Because um, when I looked around and I saw that American society had been going through and continues to go through a tremendous amount of social change. And what was responsible for that, I kept coming back to this notion that it was social movements. When I looked at things like the civil rights movement or changes in the consciousness, excuse me, all of it, it, to to my way of thinking, um, there was a social movement behind all of those changes. And so when I thought about something like changing the culture of health, it seemed to me uh, that we uh, had a model an implicit model there of how change could occur in a society like ours or an institution like a large university such as UCLA, and that was to take a social movement approach uh, to bringing about change, uh, which was very different than the dominant model that existed in people's minds, let's say, in the health professions. In the health professions, the notion was that um, rationality was going to bring change, that people... Um, let's say if you wanted to get people to stop smoking or if you wanted to get them to change their diet or exercise more, there was data that would show that 
if you did a certain thing that things were going to get better and people were rational and if you just showed them that data you educated them or you sent them a pamphlet or something they would of course behave rationally and they would uh, do it and that's the way change would occur and that's not true that that's not the way change occurs right if you have a population of smokers and you Today, there are, there are millions of smokers in the United States. I think it'd be pretty hard-pressed to find some who don't know that smoking is bad for their health. Right. Uh, that's, you can tell them that over and over. They know that already. It doesn't change their behavior. And that was the same thing when we looked at, let's say, attitudes towards uh, gay people or gay marriage or something. And uh, it wasn't knowledge that or rationality that was influencing people's behavior. It was something else. And... and Whatever that something else was, was, it seemed like very hard to change. On the other hand, we saw change going on around us all the time in society. So when I looked at, well, why is that change occurring? I was led back to this idea of a social movement. So that was really um, the key thing for me. And social movements are tricky. They're hard. They're, they're very broad. They're very amorphous. And they're also very much based in conflict. Whenever you have a social movement, it comes out of a, that there's a group of people who have a grievance, they have a complaint, there's something they don't like, and they want to change that. So it's really conflict-based. It's very different than this rationality model, which is, is anti-conflict. The notion is that rationality, there's a rational answer to things, and that if people know it, everyone will agree. Once you see the data on smoking... There's no argument. It is, it is what it is. But that's not the way change takes place. If you want to get no smoking legislation passed, if you want to raise taxes on cigarettes, or if you want to have rules that don't allow cigarettes to be sold near schools or whatever it is, right away you're involved in conflict in reality. Some people think it's terrible that cigarettes are available to school kids. And they're angry about it. They're furious about it. They see their own kids or their whatever kids they love, you know, smoking. And they're, they're angry. And they say, How, who's doing this? Who's benefiting from it? So it's emotional. Well, it's emotional. But there's also conflict because then there are people who are selling these cigarettes. And their interests are in selling more cigarettes. Right. So you can't just say, well, here's the data. And then everyone is going to coalesce around that and then say, okay, we have the data now. And gee, I make my living by selling cigarettes, but I'm going to stop now. I'm not going to, I'm going to toss my income into the garbage can because I see it doesn't work like that. And for all these things, there's conflict. So social movements are always built around conflict. I mean, if we talk about the environmental movement, we talk about gay rights, civil rights, whatever it is, it's conflict. There's a grievance. People are angry about something. Something's wrong, and they get together with the idea. They say, we want to change this. So the notion that I had was that's the way change in the health area in terms of prevention would take take place uh, because it, it's a little tricky because on one level, of course, everybody, if you ask them, are you in favor of health and do, would you like to be healthy, everybody says yes. But that's sort of an illusion because that's a foolish question to ask people because that's not the way the question exists in the real world. If you ask people, gee, would you like to have a healthy diet? Everyone's going to say yes. But if you ask them, how important to you is to have a healthy diet if it means giving up 
the 10 foods you like best in the world, then people are going to give you a different answer, mm -hmm. right? So it's meaningless to say that, gee, everybody wants to be healthy. In practical terms, most people only want to be healthy if it has no cost, mm -hmm. and it usually does have a cost to them in some way. I saw that. I was very conflict-oriented. All of my background had um, oriented me towards conflict in the world, and that progress only, things only develop and change through conflict mm -hmm. of various kinds. doesn't mean violence, but it means there's all kinds of different ways that conflict can, um, can exist in society. Like what would be an example? Well, just uh, what laws should be passed, uh, legislative yeah. conflict, value conflict, uh, different religions, uh, right? They're, they're often in conflict with one another. Um, different uh, views about how important things like individual responsibility is uh, for determining where you wind up in life. People just have different attitudes about things, and those those views some often come in conflict with with other views, right? And that's the nature of, of what you have. So I was oriented that way from the start. But the, to get it back to social movements, whenever I saw change occurring in our society, I, I saw a social movement behind that change. So I saw this idea of a grievance and a group becoming very active and trying to change that grievance as leading to a kind of collective identity change and collective actions and that's how change came about in society. So that was really the model for the Healthy Campus Initiative. At UCLA, as I'm sure at other large uh, universities, it's a very diverse group of people who live and work here. And when I looked around, I saw that there were a lot of groups who were very, uh, who wanted all kinds of changes in terms of health, a whole array of, of different things. And the idea was to mobilize them in terms of some sort of common effort and to get them to, in a way, share their concerns, uh, share their grievances, and come together and try and build a, a collective identity around that, regardless of how they differed on, this, on the particulars, mm -hmm. okay? So let's say, and, and, and Wendy, of course, you're more familiar with this than I, there were lots of groups that were concerned about food and eating and diet. Mm -hmm. But they were concerned in different areas. Some of them right. were concerned because uh, there were a lot of uh, homeless students who didn't have enough to eat. Others were concerned that the food in the dining hall should be labeled with calorie counts, and so people should have more information about what they were eating. And others were concerned that the food shouldn't be labeled with calorie counts because we had eating disorder problems on the campus, and that would make it easier for people to, um, to facilitate their eating disorders. And there were all kinds of people, staff people, and then there were professors who studied everything from the basic science of food to people uh, who were, you know, training dietitians over at the VA, which mm -hmm. was part of UCLA. And, uh, so there were hundreds and hundreds of different groups concerned with this. And my thought was, well, you want to get those groups together and just sort of put them together and see what comes out of it. Maybe they'll find some commonalities because they really do have some things in common. Mm -hmm. They were concerned about eating and the quality of food and people taking more responsibility for what they eat, knowing more about what they eat, etc. Then there were people who were concerned about the environment and farming. and uh, There were all kinds of things. Well, this is the way a movement comes together. So really, in ter terms of forming the Healthy Campus Initiative, that was the model 
that I had, that you just get these people together and something something will happen. Mm -hmm. And that is what happened. And then you just go from there. So that, that oversimplifies it a bit, but that was that's what I was thinking. And I had a very clear model in my mind because when I looked at these other movements, let's say feminism or civil rights, that's what had happened there. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who were parts of that movement, they weren't all interested in the same thing, but they had certain underlying themes in common. And what they had in common was a grievance. They were all angry and upset and dissatisfied with the way, let's say, um, people of color were being treated in the United States. What they wanted to focus on and what their solution was across, varied across the map. But it was the grievance that brought them together. And that was the model for the Healthy Campus Initiative. I know in the first two years in particular, you went and spoke to a myriad of different groups and over 60, 70 or 80 groups over those two years. And was there anything that you were surprised by in terms of a grievance? Was anything that you found during your course of you know, sharing this vision of this Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative, us being the healthiest campus in the country? Well, I, I guess I was positively surprised by the amount of interest that there was in this. The negative things didn't surprise me at all because I began with the notion that the dominant culture both in the United States and on the campus, was uh, either unconcerned or opposed to, to health and prevention. So it didn't surprise me at all. When I went to speak to these different groups, most of them, of course, they're, again, they're, they're agreeable. They're not against health and they're not against the people, let's say, who work in that unit being healthy. But in terms of their, their practical considerations, what they need at the moment, most of them were just unconcerned because they have other things on their mind. They're not really interested in being involved. So going around and talking to those people had multiple purposes. One purpose was just to to let people know what, what is going on because it's a very large campus. And, you know, we're besieged by these uh, initiatives, right? If you, you know as a, uh, a member of the faculty and as a member of the administration now that you probably get every year. 20 emails from the chancellor or somebody telling you, oh, we have a new initiative for such and such. You never hear about most of them. So after that, so that's the, that's the reality. So when most people heard about the Healthy Campus Initiative, they thought, well, it's nice. And, you know, so what? Uh, so one task was just to make people know that this was a real thing and it was going to happen. So the more people you talk to, the better, whether they're involved or not. They know who you are. They, the initials HCI means something to them in the back of their mind. They've heard it and whatever, just by the fact of going to them. Because, you know, so many of these initiatives get started and then people never hear about them. No one ever visits all the different schools. There's something like 128 departments on this campus. So just by going around, that's important in itself. The other thing I was trying to do was to get something going. It didn't really matter what. The important thing is, let's say, a year later that you can write a report and say, well, we did these five things, because that right away sets you apart from these other initiatives. So if you can show people that you've actually done something, it doesn't matter what you did, uh, and that more people are involved at the end than at the beginning, right away people see whether they agree with what you're doing or not, they take you more seriously. So that was the goal at the start. And it's just to stay in people's minds 
and uh, to get anything going because whatever you get going, it's going to lead to something else. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you saw that yourself with the, yes. what we call the uh, you know the, the eat well pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get people together and you throw them in a room and twenty ideas come out and nineteen of them die on the vine, but one of them leads to something and that leads to something else that leads to something else. And then at the end of five years, you've done 10 different things, and each of them has a core of people. There are some people who are involved in all 10, but most of them are just involved in one or two. And then you really have accomplished something there. Uh, and they all know each other, and the whole culture starts to change on the campus in terms of eating. And then you look at all the things that, that the Healthy Campus Initiative has done in terms of whether it's the gardens or the dining halls or where they they haven't been the sole force involved, but they've been an element of it. And that's that's the goal. That's the power of it. Not that you do these things by yourself, but that right. you're involved all of these other things. And then all of them lead to other things. So you're growing all the time. And it's everywhere eventually that's the goal to be everywhere and that's the way these other social movements you know you you couldn't imagine an institution in society a business for example beginning these days without being cognizant of diversity issues doesn't matter what it is that mentality has now it exists throughout the culture so that's the goal here in terms of health and prevention and so yet the you mentioned how um, there are groups of people within the healthcare field that still don't consider prevention as a priority for lots of you know competing reasons, and I see it also on our campus. Sure. In terms of the health sciences, in particular, the medical side of, of our enterprise, so to speak, they tend to even when they hear the word help, think of it in terms of medicine, not in terms of prevention. What would you recommend on how to crack that nut? Because that's a, a tough one. Well, you always, I mean, this, and I think by this point, this is pretty well established in, in public health. You have to start where people are. Uh-huh. So if you go into a community, let's say, and you say, oh, gee, I, I know what the problems are in this community. It's, yeah. it's diabetes. And so we're going to get people together and we're going to give them information about this and that and diabetes and screening and changing your diet. And you get the people together and they're not concerned with diabetes. They're concerned with the fact that uh, their kids are unsafe walking home from school. Well, so then you're in a, a situation there. You, you have a decision to make. Do you go with how they define what's going to make them healthy now or do you say, in essence, look, I know better than you. Trust me, it's not your kids coming home from school being unsafe. It's diabetes. You're a high risk for diabetes and your kids are high risk. So that's not going to work, right? <laughs> you have to start where, where people are. So if, if they feel that way, you find out what they want to do about it and you try to facilitate them accomplishing that. And hopefully, after a while... If they're successful and there is some change, it doesn't mean that that everything magically is going to change about their kids being safe coming home from school, but their success and the structures that develop out of that and their feeling of collective efficacy because they've done something, some of them may decide, well, we want to talk about eating in the community. They may not 
talk about it in terms of diabetes, but they may talk about it in terms of uh, food deserts or talk about it in who knows what, the quality in the vending machines at school or, or whatever. And you go where people are. Again, I, there's, so there's two points. One is uh, that's the way other social movements that have been successful have developed over time. And you take a less professionally dominated approach. This gets back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. You don't assume that you know more than the people know about what their needs are and what they want. You may know more about them than the, in terms of what the risk factors are for diabetes, but that doesn't mean that you know what they want and what they feel they need now. And it's very hard to do, but um, you know, people in the health professions sort of develop this idea that they have rationality, they have more rational, rationality than other people do, and so therefore they're willing to impose that rationality on other people. I think a better way to think about it is that everyone feels they're making rational choices, and if you understood how that person perceived the world, you would understand that the choices they are making are rational for them. So in the diabetes example, a person might think, yeah, I don't want diabetes, and I understand that I'm at risk for diabetes. How important is that? And the doctor told me if I don't change my diet, I'm going to have diabetes. And there's a good year, chance in a few years I'm going to have diabetes. But I have these three kids coming home from school, and one of them was bullied and beaten up, and then there is, there's no traffic lights. And the kid, that's my worry today. Uh, and, you know, the safety and well-being of my children are more important to me than the chance that I'm going to get diabetes in five years. Well, is that irrational? Maybe it is for you if your job and your salary depends on getting people to be screened for diabetes. But it's not, it's not irrational for a person to have, that, uh, to have that response. So, you know, I'm, it's not that I'm anti-rationality, but I, I don't think when it's overemphasized in terms of certain types of policies, it doesn't lead to what we want. And it doesn't, it's not the way change occurs. So um, we've just seen that, you know, people, progressive people are always saying they can't understand why people don't vote and act in their own self-interest. But sometimes they don't really have an understanding of how people themselves perceive their self-interest. So when we're talking about a culture change, I think those are the kind, that's what it comes down to. And so that's why the thing I always emphasize with the Healthy Campus Initiative is let's not be a, self, a South Campus. In other words, at UCLA, the health sciences are all centered on the southern part of the campus. Let's not be South Campus oriented. That's not what we're trying for. That's going to lead us in the wrong direction. As you yourself said, most of the people down there are not concerned about prevention. Uh, they're not concerned about the issues we're talking about. Uh, let's be focused where the need is and where a lot of desire for change is, but it's not among health professionals. That's a hard thing for people to hear, for some people to hear, but that was the perspective I brought to it. And I think that's a public health, basic public health perspective. So distinguishing, of course, the, between the school, the students themselves, and the health professional students versus mm -hmm. the practitioners, because I think that there is hope for the students 
Well, I, I think it, it's the same thing. You start with where the students are, the way you described yes. it. I'm not f- intimately familiar with it or familiar with it at all anymore, the situation down there. But again, somebody seems to feel, well, we know what their problem is. Yes. So we're going to design a program. Oh, it's going to be a great program. And we're going to require you or pressure you right. to go to the program. You start with where the, the students are, you bring them together, and what do they want? Right. And uh, then, then you, go, you go from there, and don't worry if it's not what you want. Right. Um, one of the things that they want, in fact, is to have what they want, not what you want, right. regardless of whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by, by telling them, oh, no, we know better what you want than what you yourselves want, you're putting them down. You're telling them that the, that their thought process is irrational, right? Mm-hmm. It's just what you're doing with that woman with diabetes, right? You're saying, right. you don't really know. You think you know, but I know better than you, mm-hmm. what you yourself want. And that's probably not going to work out yeah. uh, too well. You know, so that's why I say people... If it's going to work, people have to come together around a grievance. And, and you know what your grievance is. I can't tell you what your right, grievance right. is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really good advice. I think that says a lot about the sort of important strategies about community organizing and social movements. And I'm wondering, before I move on to a sort of a bigger, broader question about how do we keep the momentum going, which is, I think, really important, where did you see some of the obstacles and what were some of the ways you overcame obstacles or hurdles as you moved through developing this social movement of the Healthy Campus Initiative at UCLA? Well, in terms of the Healthy Campus Initiative, I think when obstacles came and those obstacles were almost always that some group of people were opposed to what we thought should be done, of course, sometimes the, the obstacles are insurmountable, um, but I think the general uh, approach would be to try to incorporate those people into whatever the group is. So uh, even people with very different views. So there was uh, a time when we had uh, some conflict with people who do um, physical planning on the campus. Uh, you know, the architects, the sort of urban planner types. Well, we were fairly successful in some ways with getting those people involved instead of saying, gee, your values are different than ours. We're not going to have anything to do with you. Say, you know, gee, we need your perspective right here on the on this group, in this pod, which is the language we use in Healthy Campus Initiative. It was in the uh, Be Well pod. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's bring you in. You should, it's crucial that you're here. You know, will you come? Will you join the pod? And um, they'll speak and let and and don't impose. I, th- I think the key to any kind of administrative success, if you're a person like yourself or I was, who's charged administratively with running these programs, is is the old Zen uh, adage, which is not to become attached to any particular outcome. In other words, you may have an idea about what the the right thing to do is in terms of, I don't know, healthy vending machines or some particular thing. But if that's going to become something that's really dealt with and the vending people are going to be involved and the uh, people who run the stores are going to be involved and the transportation people and God knows who else has to be involved in this kind of thing, you know what you want, but whatever comes out, it, it doesn't really matter what comes out as long as there's movement in the right direction 
and if people's consciousness is raised. Because even if you don't get the, the outcome that, that you think is the right outcome, and people in the group are annoyed, that's okay. That just means that they learn more about the grievance and how, how resistant the culture is to changing things and what has to be changed, and that maybe it's not possible to change some things and why. So once you become attached to a particular outcome, I think that's that's very that's not a good thing in terms of what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. So really using the strategy of not becoming attached will help you deal with hurdles. Right. Yeah. Right. And also increase engagement. Right. Exactly. Again, having a model uh, of these other social movements in the back of your mind, I, I think, is useful because when you think of another social movement, right away you see how broad and amorphous it is. Right. And you realize that in terms of the big change, it doesn't really matter. The best thing for the movement, let's take a look at something like the environmental movement or something. The best thing for the movement is simply that it grows and more and more people adopt the perspective. And if people within the movement disagree, they'll form segments and groups and there'll be a million different groups and they'll be at odds. At different, but the, that's, it's sort of right. like the, the image should be like a big cloud uh. of gas enveloping, <laughs> you know. And it doesn't really matter that it goes in this direction first right. or, or, or whatever. Um, but you just want people to have this basic feeling that they're connected, that they're all pretty much want the same thing to happen. And let a thousand flowers bloom, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you think gardens are the right way to go, some people are going to think gardens are so important. Other people are going to think gardens is the, the last right. thing. that w- It isn't a matter of proving to ones that, oh, well, you're right, we're going to have these gardens. Or, no, the anti-garden people's one, and that's it. When, let everybody go do, do their right. thing. That's what the movement is, that it's not a set of specific things that we must have. So what I'm hearing and sort of is is answering some of the question that I was going to pose next, which is about how do you maintain momentum for an initiative that now has evolved to be a center. And I'm hearing that a strategy for engagement is to not have an attachment to any particular outcome. And at the same time, also working in a bureaucracy, you need to be cognizant of, of agreeing but agreeing with your vision in mind as you move forward. But how do you maintain a momentum? What are your thoughts about how to maintain momentum in general and then more specifically to the Healthy Campus Initiative, since this is sort of the case study we're talking about with social movement right now? Well, that's a very good question. I guess uh, it seems to me there's no shortage of issues that people want to be involved with on the campus and it's just a matter of making sure that the Healthy Campus Initiative is involved with, with those groups. So you've mentioned a, a good deal of the time uh, in terms of mental health needs for different groups on the campus. So there's uh, a lot of concern, whether it's you talk about medical students, but of course there's a, similar concerns with, with graduate students of all you know, uh, shapes and, and persuasions. Uh, so that's uh, one area. 
you know, there are specific issues. I mentioned things like traffic patterns and things that, that some people are going to be very concerned with. There's uh, all kinds of disability uh, issues. Obviously, the Me Too movement is huge. It has a million different uh repercussions or tangents that go off from it in terms of various types of sexual harassment and retaliation and things like that. So uh, that's, uh, that's an area. I imagine uh, there's so much emphasis now on uh, the, the digital world and sort of the health consequences of that in terms of information or supposed information that's available. And some of it is, is good information. Some of it is not such good information. So curating that, there's a lot of ideas there. You talk to staff people um, and they have organizations and you see what they want to do and that, what's the most important thing for them. And uh, then you just read the L.A. Times. And you you go from you go from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, you see what is is hot, so to speak. I mean, you're very sensitive to to those kinds of things, and um, I think that's great. I think that's one of the real strengths that you bring to the to the HCI. Those are great ideas, and I see what you're saying is that in order to keep momentum, part of it is just being rele- keeping yourself relevant to right. what people's what's on people's minds and what are the sort of conflicts that are going and on. And what they're complaining about. And what their concerns are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what are the grievances? Yeah. Okay. That's very that's very wise information. And makes it makes it relevant in terms of any university movement has to be really homegrown because every university campus will have different absolutely priorities, different challenges and so forth. So on a larger scale, going back, um, I'd love to talk a bit about your influential book you wrote on the origins and ideologies of three crucial health movements in our country, dieting, exercise, and non-smoking. It's called The Health Movement, Promoting Fitness in America. And what is so important about these three health movements? Well, of course, I wrote that book a long time ago. So I think to my mind, they're all just different aspects of the same underlying uh, movement, which I call the, the health movement there. Well, first of all, throughout American history, there's been a waxing and waning with concern, the kinds of things we've been talking about today, a concern for health and prevention right. and being healthy. And what does that mean? And whenever th- those concerns have been high, those three things have been together. The idea of eating in a more healthy way, whatever that means, being physically active and uh, eliminating uh, contaminants from the body. And of course, people at different times, people are concerned with different contaminants. But tobacco has been, in American history, very, very important. So those three things have always always come together. And um, I saw them as uh, related to each other in that sense historically because the concern with them comes from a shared set of values that people have. And that's really what that book is about as I remember it. (laughs) My memory may not be uh, completely accurate. So let me speak very briefly about those values because there's a whole bunch of them and it gets back to a lot of the things that we've been talking about here about the healthy culture. Uh, The first one is that this idea of wellness or what some people refer to as high-level wellness. And I think the key thought there is that wellness is not simply the absence of a diagnosis or symptoms, 
but wellness is something else. It's independent. You can have a diagnosis of whatever, and your wellness is independent of that. You can have low wellness or no wellness, or you can be Social at a Social well-being, for instance. Or your well-being, yeah. uh, your ability to function, your happiness, your whatever, right. resilience, whatever you want to call it, whatever the components are, that wellness is separate. It's not just, uh, you know, in, in the, the medical people you've been talking about, they understand health in a, what I would call a residual way. They have a bunch of tests and a bunch of questions that they ask you, and if the answer is no for all of them and all the tests come back negative, you're healthy. Mm-hmm. Health is the absence of symptoms. It's the right. absence of a diagnosis. That's not what this movement mm-hmm. is about. Wellness is different than the absence of symptoms and the absence. It doesn't mean we, we don't want to reduce symptoms. We don't right, we want to, right. reduce, but it's something different. So that's, that's one thing. So what is wellness then? That brings us partially to the answer of your question, why those three things are together. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. The other, another thing, and this is a very complicated area, um, we don't really have time to get into a detail, that all of these things emphasize is personal responsibility. In some way, you have to eat better. Uh-huh. You have to exercise. I can't give you a pill and it's the equivalent of you exercising. You know, if you're going to stop smoking or stop drinking or whatever it is, you have to do it. You have to be responsible for actively doing something. And again, that's one of the tensions with health professionals. Health professionals tend to do things to you. They give you a prescription. They do a, an operation. They perform an operation. They whatever. Um, with wellness... You're doing it yourself in some way. You you are responsible for doing it. A third thing is the interplay between mind, body, and spirit in these things. That, um, you know, we can talk about it in terms of the work that you did so well and continue to do with the, the uh, healthy campus, uh, the food part of the healthy campus, where there's a notion there's a biological part about what you put in the, your body, but there's a motivational part. And more and more, there's a, a kind of spiritual part in terms of, for some people, it's being a vegetarian or being vegan or um, supporting local farms or just the effect of having the gardens down at the hospital has on people, that these things all come together in some way and the mind, body, and spirit are seen as interpenetrating each other and all can be causal in terms of the other two. Any one of them, one can has causal mm-hmm. implications for the other two and is also a response, therefore, to the other mm-hmm. two. Okay, so, so that interplay of body, mind, and spirit... Um, and uh, another aspect of it is that to be healthy or to be well means living in harmony with nature, whatever that means. But there's clearly, uh, let's say on this campus, been a huge affinity between the people who are concerned with environmental issues and sustainability issues mm-hmm. and health issues. That That is is there. There's also a real ambivalence towards uh, science, technology, and medicine. They're not against these things, but they're ambivalent about it. The feeling is if there's too much emphasis on that, it goes against these other things. And, you know, the non-professional, the emphasis on non-professionals uh, that we, that's been an undercurrent in the discussion here. So that's tied up in all of this. And then a whole set of values around what I call in the book, as I recall, prevention, vigilance, and restraint the idea that to be healthier, to be well, you have to cast a middle ground balance, which means if you like something, 
you got to put some limits on it that even if it's a good thing, if you do it too much, it's not going to be good. And you have to sort of watch out. You have to be vigilant. The thing about being healthy, and this is what stops a lot of people, uh, let's say to eat a healthy diet. If you eat a healthy diet on Monday, that's great. But when Tuesday comes, mm-hmm. you still got to eat the healthy diet. So um, it, it's this idea of, um, uh, of vigilance. You have to, you know, you, and those values go against the values in our culture. The values in our culture is, hey, if this is good and you like this on Monday, on Tuesday, you're going to do it again. If you went to Starbucks and you had a whatever, uh, uh, this whatever thing they're offering today, and that's great. Well, the fact that it's great means you just want to do it again, right? And so there's a different set of values. And that gets back to the question you asked about diet, exercise, and and the smoking business. All these values are in there, and they all come together in this, what I saw as a health movement. And that's a different angle of what we've been talking about here. Mm. Or one of the problems in our society is that when things are developed that are good for people, they immediately become unrestrained because we have this notion that we just want to make more and more money out of things. So if I'm providing the service to get you to your class quicker, it's really good and it's really useful and it it calms you down so you don't have to be so anxious, gee, I'm not going to get to my exam on time and all of that. But somehow what comes out of it at the end is you ought to do that every time, three times a day, back and forth. It ends up being unhealthy for you. You know, you don't exercise. You, the traffic is clogged, and all the things we talked about. So you have this idea of moderation yeah, in all these which things, is balance, balance and yeah. all of this. So those are the values in the health movement, and those are not necessarily the values in our society. Uh, tolerance, things like that, are very important, but we're getting away from that. And I think one of the things that's attractive to people about it, and one of the things to the Healthy Campus Initiative should be focusing on, in my view, although it's very hard to specify this, is this idea of balance and moderation. Right. And uh, that's so important uh, to people. And yet so much in our society pushes us away from from that. It isn't that there's anything wrong with with drinking a, a little... A bottle or a little glass of Coca-Cola. Right. Uh, what's wrong is when all of a sudden every um, fast food place is advertising. Well, well, for the same price as that little thing, we'll give you a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you know, you can have sixty-four ounces for what you just paid for eight ounces. Then somehow things have gone okay. sort of crazy, and uh, everybody knows it's no good, but everyone wants it at the same time. So that's sort of a little disjointed answer, but uh, I think, you know. Well, I think that it sort of answers the question I was going to ask you next, which was what, what do you think the most pressing health issue of our society faces today? I mean, well, I think the, the issues, uh, clearly access to healthcare, which is different than what we've been talking about. That's number one. But the other thing is, and this will take us back to the very first questions that you asked inequality that, you know, when I started being interested in these things, let's say um, in the mid-1960s. Okay, so that's that's a while ago. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, I and everybody I knew had this image 
that, yes, social change was taking place much too slow, but it was taking place, and we were moving in a good direction. There was no question that in 10 years, things would be better than they were. Let's say in 1975, they'd be better than they were in 1965, and in 1985, they'd be better than... Things were slowly going to get better. That was inevitable, right? right? I don't think we have that image now, and I think one way we can see that is in terms of basic inequalities in the society. That inequality in the United States has gotten much worse between 1965 or 1970 and today. And in some respects, inequality in health and education just reflects those inequalities, Mm -hmm. those more basic economic inequalities. So that's really the major issue. And for me, the whole notion of the health movement or changing, making it a healthier culture, is that in some way that will contribute to reducing these inequalities, whether we're looking at some specific health-related goal, depression, or, you know, diabetes, or any of these, any of these things, or smoking, or whatever, and also reducing those will foster a reduction in those basic economic inequalities as well. If people are healthier, especially young people, they will be able and willing to have better education. And that will lead to them being able to have more productive lives and have better jobs and have more money, etc. That all these things are part of the broad um, structure of society. So that's really... uh, But inequality... And access, of course, is just one aspect of inequality. Um, That's um, the major issue that, in my mind, that we face today. So, in in essence, your journey of reducing inequality by improving the culture of health on a campus, and now, thanks to your vision and Jane Terry's, it's really transformed UC-wide. Different cultures, different paces, but feel that that's a step forward, isn't it? Right. I think, uh, of course, it hasn't gone nearly as far as we would, you and I would like it to. The first step in this is just an awareness. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, for the most part, people don't have an awareness that just about every decision that is made, let's say the campus is going to build a new building, that there are that those, that decision is going to have an impact on the health and well-being of the people who work in that building, That's the students right. who study in that building, the people who work surrounding it. It's yeah. going to let, is it going to block all the light? Do we have, we're sitting here in your office, this wonderful natural light, but there's a parking lot out there, and that's been part of the problem, right, the noise from the parking lot. Well, what if they say we're going to get rid of that parking lot, but we're going to build a huge structure, a huge building there, and then there's no more natural light here? Well, the first step, I'm not saying they shouldn't build that building, but I'm saying the very first step is there has to be an awareness that all these decisions impact people's well-being. People should be thinking about this. Um, So that's, in that sense, I think we've made some baby steps forward. Yes. But they're just baby steps, and they can be uh, wiped out in an instant. And uh, we see right now, uh, politically in this country, how in just the space of a couple of years, uh, how much consciousness has has changed about this, and that these gains that we thought were irrevocable, mm-hmm. they're not irrevocable. Right. And we look around the world, and things that we saw um, breaking down of barriers and borders doesn't mean that they disappear, but 
interchange between people, it seemed like that was that was a good thing, and that etc. and cultural diversity and all of that. It's under attack in very basic ways, right. and uh, it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. That in other words, so in my mind, it it comes back that uh, conflict that that people have to assert their vision and they have to be willing to uh, to fight for that. Uh, that vi- and like be vigilant said. about it. Yes. Uh, otherwise, these gains will disappear mm-hmm. very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So in a way, uh, maybe that's a negative message uh, because the, the image about health at least used to be that, oh, you know, once we cure these diseases, we're not going back. Mm. But we see now, even here in California, with something as, as fundamental as the measles that's and the vaccine, it's very easy to go back. And people, it's really, uh, it's a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that, well, to wrap up, for anyone who sees an issue and wants to do something about it, what would your advice be to them? To get involved. It doesn't matter. The the thing is to be involved and um, because that will do something good for you. It may not be what you expect it to do, like, oh, I'm going to be involved and the issue is going to be resolved. Uh, but just involvement and engagement in the world is a good thing, and to do it in a way that um, reflects what you think is the best version of yourself, the values that you hold to be true to you, and to just do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what, what, what people have to do. And, you know, if it's a health-related thing, that's great, but whatever it is, that that's that's right. just Being just purposeful. do it and to understand that when you do things like that you know it's not just that you're doing things for other people but you're doing something for yourself right. and just to, to try that and and see i think people will see that that is that is true or at least most people will well michael what you do it all the time you've been an incredible leader not just in the healthy campus initiative here at ucla you've resolved a lot of challenges on this campus and thank you so much oh you're very welcome thank you for tuning in to ucla live well for more information about today's episode and the resources mentioned visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash live well podcast today's podcast was brought to you by the semel healthy campus initiative center at ucla to stay up to date with our episodes Subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get to know us a little better and follow us at Healthy UCLA. If you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, tweet your idea to us, please. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being.